Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. We're again at the law offices of Venable in Washington, D.C. as part of our ongoing series, Demystifying the Infrastructure Bill, and today we're speaking with Fred Wagner. Fred was appointed the chief counsel of the U.S. Federal Highway Administration during the Obama administration and now focuses on environmental and natural resource issues associated with major infrastructure, mining, and energy project development. He's going to give us insight in what it takes for the money to find its way into the public realm, the lessons we've learned to make this a more efficient, effective, and equitable endeavor, and what the built environment industry needs to consider to better understand the opportunities afforded by this bill. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. So one of the things that, as a normal human being, uh, outside of these government circles, we hear so much in the press about the infrastructure bill, particularly the physical infrastructure bill that was recently passed, I believe about $1.2 trillion. How does that work? Honestly, you hear about authorization occurring in the, in the United States government, but what does it take for that money to actually find its place in the public realm? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. The first thing that folks have to understand is what's in the $1.2 trillion. And not all of the $1.2 trillion is new money. Fully half of the money is a reauthorization of existing programs that have been underway for, for years and years. And that deals with your basic surface transportation programs, your highway program, your transit programs, rail, airports, and so forth. So fully $550 billion of the $1.2 trillion is a re-upping of those existing programs. So this is not, um, how shall I say, it's not new debt. It's just recurring debt. Well, we have the Highway Trust Fund, that funds a good portion of that surface transportation program, but not all of it. But yes, some debt is involved because the Highway Trust Fund isn't keeping up with how much money we need, in part because we're buying less gasoline these days, and eventually the transition to electric vehicles will make that so. But no, it, it is existing programs uh, that the government has been running for, for years and years. Amazing. So uh, what we're saying here is a little over $600 billion, then therefore is new funding, for physical infrastructure, or is that true? No, that, that absolutely is true. Some of it is above and beyond that $550 billion, the existing programs, to allow more public transportation money, more highway money, et cetera. And some of it is brand new programs that hadn't heretofore been uh, contemplated as part of physical infrastructure. Think broadband. That's now part of this bill. People have been talking about it for years. Now it's in the bill. Think environmental remediation for brownfields to allow redevelopment in certain areas. That's part of this bill. Think transmission lines necessary to support uh, the transition to cleaner power. That's part of the infrastructure bill as well. So, so there was an expansion of the uh, traditional definition of infrastructure beyond roads and bridges and trains and planes. Uh, and that's part of the additional money above the $550 billion. So now that that door has been opened and we have expanded the definition and the scope of physical infrastructure, you can't close that door after it's been opened. Correct. Right? The, the money has been authorized. So when you say, how does it really work? 
the real work is done. And it, you know, I used to talk to people about how politicians always talked about infrastructure. And the ones that talked about infrastructure the most were the ones that lost <laughs> because it's just so unsexy. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it, it, right. you know, there's other things to talk about. Well, how the money gets distributed and how the money gets spent, that's also very unsexy. You know, I, I'm glad we're talking about it on a podcast because it's a family show. Because <laughs> it's not very interesting in certain extent. But the people that work in the agencies day to day, they're the ones responsible for getting the money out the door, reviewing the expenditures. The other thing your your listeners have to understand is the difference between discretionary and non-discretionary funding or formula funding. So discretionary versus formula funding. A great deal of the money, especially in the transportation sector, is called formula funding. Money automatically goes out to the states and the state DOTs, sometimes in concert with you know, big cities and other transportation organizations within that state, decide how to spend that money. Wow. They decide how to spend that money based on long-term planning that's done also by statute to figure out what they want to do, what the state really needs in order to build infrastructure around the state. Federally funded, but state administered. And is there federal oversight? Correct. The federal aid bill that established the highway program has this phrase that, you know, people should memorize, which is federally assisted state run. It's federally assisted state run. So the states run it and the feds assist. Assist means also oversight to make sure that the money is spent carefully. And that's one of the reasons President Biden hired the former mayor of New Orleans, Mayor Landrieu, to be the overseer of all this money. Because it's a lot of money to manage and get out the door. And the last thing any administration wants, Republican or Democrat, is the impression that the money is being spent unwisely or there's fraud, waste, and abuse. So the uh, oversight of the federal government is going to be amped up a bit with the, with the presence of this infrastructure czar, uh, Mayor Landrieu. Wow. Wow. So help me understand the difference between authorizing and appropriating. Right. So Congress authorizes the money. That's, that's, that's the top line number. They've authorized $1.2 trillion. Then the money is distributed, some by formula, as I, as I described, some discretionary. And those are the grant programs, the applications. Think the what used to be called the TIGER program. Now it's called the RAISE program. If they don't change the name yet again, I hope they don't because it's very confusing. Uh, but those are discretionary programs where people apply for the money and the agencies have an opportunity to decide who gets it and who doesn't. And when you say the people, the different states, or there, it's not just states? Not just states. It could be cities. It could be transit organizations. It could be metropolitan planning organizations. It could be port authorities. It could be partnerships between private entities and public entities. Get in line, pretty Get much, line. right? And uh, I'm guessing that there is some federal criteria that put you either in the front of the line or the back of the line for, exactly. around this. Exactly, and, and that's where the politics comes in. Yeah. Because there's generic criteria for all those programs, and Congress you know, defines what its expectations are. But ultimately, it's run by the agency, and the agency is run by the people who are in power at the time. So, for example, for the uh, infra program at the U.S. DOT, when I was a political appointee under Barack Obama, infra was laser beam focused on enhancing, improving freight transportation because there was a desperate need for that. Under this administration now, 
They're also putting in criteria related to equity and climate. Is that the heart of what the infra program was intended to be? Not, not necessarily. But guess what? If you're sitting in the chair making those decisions, you have some power to sort of cater to your policy initiatives. And that's when you get to the oversight situation. You bet. It's not just the czar in terms of how the money's being spent internally, but Congress, the other branch of government, says, hey, wait a minute. You got, I'm making up the number, a thousand applications for infra. You gave out 50 grants because it was way oversubscribed. Why did you pick those 50 and not these 50 or the ones in my in my jurisdiction that I wanted to sure. be? So? Yeah. And you, you know, it elevated other criteria like equity or climate in a way that's inappropriate. So you're going to see that push and pull in Washington, D.C. over the next, you know, two and a half, three years while this administration's in, in power all the time. So as that occurs, that push and pull, that tension in the system, that argument, that fundamentally just delays the actual distribution of the funds to real work? Not really. I, th- I think the applications will come in, the grants will, will go out, the list gets presented to Congress, and then Congress calls an oversight hearing to say, wait a minute, how, how, do you, how did you make those decisions? Again, hoping to influence the next round Got and it. the next round after that, because every year there's going to be rounds of these kind of grant reviews and grant applications. The infrastructure bill expands the number of agencies that are doing that, right? Because you have Department of Energy now involved with transmission. You have the US EPA involved in water treatment programs, remediation, brownfields development. And you may have other agencies as well dealing with some of these issues. So the oversight for the discretionary bucket is going to be a a, a big deal in Washington, D.C., especially if Congress flips. So in this $1.2 approximately, percentage-wise, is discretionary versus programmatic? And, And that's where I think people get a little, when we talk about demystifying, over time, historically, the bucket is roughly 90% formula, 10% discretionary. Roughly. Sometimes it goes up a little bit. Sometimes it goes down a little bit. That proportion, believe it or not, is not very much different in the new bill. I'd say it's a little bit higher. I think maybe it's inching up closer to 12 or 13% than 10, but it's still going to be majority formula funding. The political attention, of course, is always on the discretionary. Huge, of course, you bet. Right, right. Because for every application that comes in to fund a particular project, you get letters from the congressional delegation saying, pick me. <laughs> you of know, course. I, I want right. my constituents to get that money. So looking over the decades of different bills that have come through, not as regular as we would like because we see crumbling infrastructure everywhere, but at the end of the day, we've made this unbelievable change with over a trillion dollars on this particular bill. What lessons have we learned or are we not learning the lessons? I mean, listening to you, it's business as usual. We're going to tug and pull and we're going to do these things. Now we have a bunch of new players at the table, which only complexes the dynamic. And now we have this czar sitting over the top of it. And it makes you scratch your head and go, you know, we're smarter than this. How could you make this more efficient, effective, and equitable? Ooh, three E's. There you go. Uh, And equitable uh, to deal with the fundamental problems of crumbling infrastructure as well as the need for this new expanded definition of new infrastructure because absolutely we need infrastructure to include the cleanup of 
things, but also the inclusion of new things around renewable energy and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think where we're going to get smarter as a country, and, and again, I don't think this is going to be a partisan issue. I think there's going to be a greater emphasis on the philosophy that's generally phrased, fix it first. You might have heard that discussed. And because there's so much infrastructure out there that needs repair right away, think about all the structurally deficient bridges that are out there. You know, rather than spending a lot of time and attention on you know, finding new places to build and grow, let's fix the infrastructure that we have so that it's safe and it's reliable. And I think one of the ways that we're going to get smarter is that people are going to focus on the things that desperately need that repair. And then they're going to identify you know, the bigger projects, the, the more transformative projects, and devote the attention that they need to that. But that's not going to be the main focus, is my view. Uh, because there's so much out there that needs repair. Even in, in our transit system, transit has more money than it ever had in this new bill, more than ever. But there's a concept in the transit industry called a state of good repair. You just have to ride the DC metro system to know <laughs> that that's a crucial issue. For the last four months, we've been struggling because half the rail cars are out of service because of deficiencies in the rail cars. It's that sort of attention to making sure the system that we have works is reliable as opposed to dreaming up, although it's very exciting and politicians love ribbon cuttings, to, to build yet another extension of the metro line out to different places. So we'll get smarter that way. The other way we'll get smarter is we'll figure out the, the infrastructure that's going to give us the biggest bang for the buck. So the broadband is the best example of that. If the pandemic has shown nothing else, the divide economically and otherwise by not having access to, to broadband is, is huge. And the economic benefit and bump that the country can get for expanding that is, is tremendous. And that's, quote, new infrastructure, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But infrastructure that gets a, a real big bang for the buck. Water development, you know, water quality. Again, for, for communities not to have safe, reliable drinking water is... Uh, is a sin in the United States of America. And you can get a tremendous benefit economically, public health, by devoting money to that. So we're going to get smarter by saying, hey, look, before we dream up many new things that we want to do, let's make sure the things that we have are working well, they can last into the future, they're resilient against climate change, and let's focus on the projects that can give us the biggest bang for the buck. And if we do it well and we do it smart, some of that money can be spent expeditiously and fairly and get a really good return on investment. In the traditional surface transportation program, the different formula funds are generally, not always, generally an 80-20 split with the 80 coming from the feds and the states matching 20. There are some programs that go 90-10 and some programs go 100. It, it, it's not all the same, but, but there is a concept of state and local match to provide. You know, and, and what that does, it, it, it demonstrates the commitment from the localities to say, we really want this. We've planned for this. We need this. There's buy-in from the community. There's buy-in politically. And that's some of the rationale behind some of the match. But generally speaking, 80-20, depending on the program. So I'm going to come back around to what you were talking about earlier about how these funds get allocated and understood and distributed. Let us pretend, Fred, that you and I, in a private organization, were just funded with $100 billion. Some nut wrote us a check for $100 billion. And they said to us, we want you to make this area of Massachusetts Avenue running all the way down to be renewed, completely renewed. And we'd love to see your proposal. Now, we would not complex it this much. 
we would be very straightforward. In the private world, things are based upon a business plan. A proforma is developed. Professional project people are brought in to plan every step and stage. Cost managers are put in place to ensure that material and labor is locked in against a targeted budget, against a targeted specification, against a targeted uh, outcome, right? And so in the private world, we see an unbelievable amount of efficiency occur. Why can't we do this? Well, um, democracy. <laughs> so, so in your example, for you know, talking about Massachusetts Avenue, the range of things that you can do on, our, on this beautiful boulevard right behind us ranges from simply repaving it so it's nicer, it's easier to, to drive on, or you can completely reimagine it. I want fewer cars on Massachusetts right, Avenue. Right. I want more bicycles and pedestrian ways. I want to increase safety. So by I want to separate where the people walk and bikes go versus cars. I want to eliminate parking because parking just boxes things up. So I, you can reimagine the street. And that's where democracy comes in. What has the local government plan and what does the local community support that balances mobility with some of these other objectives and initiatives for quality of life? Mm-hmm. And how people go about day to day. So a private entity could look at that street and say, this is the most efficient way to deal with this street. And they just go ahead and do it. A public entity says, well, this could be the most efficient way to deal with the street, but what do my constituents support? What, what's tolerable out there? I may think that the best thing to do is to eliminate vehicular traffic from a climate perspective, from an equity perspective, and elevate other sorts of modes of transportation. But I have to make sure there's buy-in on that. Because ultimately, when that facility opens and I've changed it, I don't want my voters to be angry at me. Got it. Because at the end of the day, it's not private money. It's public money. Every taxpayer, quote-unquote, has a voice in the spend of that money. And, and and that's why it's different, right? And that and that's why it's different. Even when you get to you know some of the bigger projects. So let's say that's a fairly modest proposal, reimagining a street. It costs money. But now it's about a big proposal, extending a metro line or building a new bridge over the Potomac, or a new Chesapeake Bay Bridge crossing, or something like that. Billions of dollars associated with that. Well, not only do you have the buy-in for the public, but because it's so much money and takes so much time to plan, there's a whole bunch of time associated with it too. So the other reason it's different is that the public officials out there want their voters to see stuff. They want them to see results. So they're balancing, what can I get that's out there now that people could see that their lives are better? And being somewhat a responsible public official, what do I plan for now that's going to help people in the long run? There it is. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so that balance, that tension is always going to be there because you're running for office in 2022. You're not running for off, you know, not in 2028. It's wonderful if the bridge opens in 2028. So I'm very focused on 2022 and therefore short-term outcomes. What can I do now? What can I do now? And so the third area where I think you say, can we get smarter? The third area where we can get smarter, David, is by focusing on smaller level projects that can provide benefits most quickly. All right. So what do I mean by that? Again, uh, let's say the transit space. There's amazing things that we can do. Amazing things we can do by providing microtransit in disadvantaged communities. So rather than build a new underground subway that goes under the community, maybe, you know, right, 20 right, years later, right, 20 years later, <laughs> we can get a hundred electric vans shuttling people from disadvantaged communities to major places of employment 
major places of education, metro stations. And we could do that less than a year. Yes. Right, we, we knew that right away and for much less money and get a lot of people a lot of benefit right away. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just an example. No, I think it's a great example. You know, we've done a lot of work in the past around software development, and there's two philosophies of software development. There's called waterfall, which is you start with a large project plan and you work through it over time, and eventually you have this da da, this deliverable in a piece of software. And then there's what's called agile which means you run against a series of sprints and you have short, many short deliverables along the way. And as you do that, it has so many positive benefits. Quality is always on check. Specification is always right. Your team suddenly feels successful in a waterfall project. You don't know you're successful until you're way down the road. But when you run against these sprints, there is so much positive social value technical value, you know, client value, et cetera. And so that's exactly on a parallel stream what you're right. talking about. I'll give you an example in the infrastructure world. In this area, uh, I-270, right. no- notorious, very, very difficult, very traffic, uh, you know, congestion all the time. A project is just coming online. It's a relatively modest project. It's called Transportation Systems Management, TSM project. And what they did is they incorporated technological and very minor benefits along the corridor to help improve congestions. For example, they put light metering on the ramps to get onto I-270. They created, uh, you know, turnoff lanes where buses can, you know, use a, a lane and they don't have to be in the main track. Very, very minor things. They didn't build a new lane. You know, they didn't, you know, add a new, you know, ramp. They, they changed the functioning of the road, invested a modest amount of money. And the, the concept is that you can get a congestion benefit that people can appreciate and see in the short term without having to do all the planning and approvals necessary for the major project. Now, we need those too, but in the short term, we can do some of this stuff. And I think there's going to be a high demand for what you call the agile (laughs) system of infrastructure for, for people to see benefit. And again, as I said before, especially those things that can be force multipliers. So let's talk about this upcoming, not so far away, uh, midterm elections that will be coming in the United States. And of course, we have this razor edge majority right now at the Democratic side. A lot of things are up in the air, a lot of disruption occurring. What happens if in the midterm elections, the Congress flips and it goes red? How does this impact what has just occurred in the passage of this physical infrastructure bill and the way that money might be distributed going forward? Um, Three words, Uh, oversight, oversight, oversight. I I mean, that's really the the main thing. The agency still, the USDOT, EPA, all the agencies that got this money, they still have the obligation to get that money out the door. Congress has authorized that money. They can't not spend it. But what Congress can do is say, you know, how are you spending it? You know, what are the priorities being done? You know, if it's a, a Republican Congress now, you know, one can see things like, you know, why should California get all this money? You know, you know, I, I want Texas to get more money, or, and stuff like that could happen quite a bit. There could be a return to uh, stressing public-private partnerships with a Congress like that. You know, mm-hmm. and, and candidly, there's not that much opposition in the Democratic administration to doing that, but mm-hmm. the Republicans really like that model for project delivery, even more so than the traditional public type of infrastructure project. So you'll see those kind of changes. But until January 2020, 
five, the people who are in charge now still have the responsibility for managing the request for money for the discretionary funds and then for overseeing the flow of money for the formula funds. And that's not going to change. One last question. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. What wisdom do you have for us as a as an industry? The built environment industry is what we refer to it, is this massive global industry. And here in the United States, it is, I believe, the second largest industry behind healthcare in the U.S. What words of wisdom do you have for us about what's happened and what could happen going forward? Well, I think the, the thing that I encourage folks in your industry to consider is the best way to be able to capture the planning for and then the assessment of these projects as they go out. The thing that has been tremendously frustrating over the years, uh, even when we were just doing the traditional authorization bills, is that we have these great plans, grandiose plans and ideas, and then it just takes you know, forever you know, to bring them to fruition. And that's a, that, that's a problem for the country, obviously. That's a problem politically. And it, it diminishes the confidence yes. that the American people have in the, the importance of infrastructure. The best thing that you know, the partnership between the public sector and, and your, your members can, can do is how do we efficiently and fairly permit and review the planning for these projects so it doesn't take four, five, six years just to get to the start line? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? And uh, you know, I'd commend a way to be inclusive, you know, transparent uh, with the communities, with the public to say, you know, this is what it's going to be like. Here's the negative, here are the positives, and here's how we can deal with it. And, and not wait to be told that you have to do this, but get out ahead of the curve and say, this is how we think about these major projects when we plan them. Uh, this is the information we're going to reach out to the communities that are affected, because the more buy-in we can get, the more we can explain the benefits to the community, the more we can explain that we're listening to your concerns before we put shovels right, in the ground, right. the quicker we're going to be able to get some of these major projects out the door. This is just phenomenal because at the end of the day, all of this stops because of the human emotion of fear, the fear of the unknown, and therefore the brakes go on, right? And what you're saying is be transparent, invite everyone in. Not everyone will know what they're talking about, but that's okay. You guide them, don't direct them. I, I tell my wife all the time, I've been you know, working in this field for you know over three decades now. And the question I ask her is, why do people who do not vote show up at the community meeting when the Walmart is being proposed to come to their community? What's the difference? You're voting. You're picking who's going to help dictate your future. But they may not vote, and they may not have voted since the Truman administration, but they show up at the community meeting about the Walmart. Why? What's the difference? And it's where we live. It's where we live day to day. It's what we see when we walk our kids to school. It's what we see when we come home every night. And people care about that so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if the, the, the industry that plans, the architects and the engineers of the world and the public officials who authorize the money can come together to work with these communities, I believe you could find so much more acceptance of these major projects. People understand intrinsically, oh, it's better if I can drive faster, it's better if I have more transportation options, but they still worry, just like you say, they still worry. How can we be more open about that? And if we can do that, I think that's the best that you said, if I run the world, that's the best thing we can do. That's fantastic. Fred, thank you for joining me today. 
And uh, I look forward to another time, I'm sure, in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.